We're in the book of Ezekiel tonight, and we're in Ezekiel 43. There are 48 chapters, so we can do the math. I, 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 I don't think it will take us two months to get the remaining um, few chapters. Though, if you were with us, ordinarily it's my intention, at least in this series, I, my goal was to take a chapter a week. And if you were with us, we were in chapter 40 last week. And I've jumped ahead, chapter 41 and 42. And essentially, 40, 40, 41, 42, treat the same themes. It's the new temple, which I'm arguing is to be understood spiritually. And then we look forward to the new Jerusalem, the new temple coming down out of heaven. I think Revelation chapter 20 in some other places, which is why I understand what I understand. Um, and so... Chapter 41 and 42 are more of the measurements of the new temple. And then with chapter 43, the Holy Spirit introduces us to a related theme, which is the presence of the living God in the temple, which is what makes the temple holy. And I thought that was sufficiently different so I wouldn't be preaching essentially a redundant sermon. So ordinarily I don't jump over, but I thought given given. The content of 4142, I, I don't think that anyone would be too upset with me. And so we'll look at verses 1 through 12 tonight, because as I say, it's a relate, it's related. It's the it's the presence of, of God filling the new temple, which I understand also to, to be understood in a spiritual way. Real, but spiritually speaking. So Isaiah 43, and I'm going to take from verses 1 through 12. Hear the holy word of our holy God. And he led me to the gate, the gate facing towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And the Spirit lifted me up brought me into the inner court and behold the glory of the Lord filled the house then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me and he said to me son of man this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever and the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die by setting their threshold by my threshold their doorposts beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. They've defiled my holy name by their abominations which they've committed, so I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away from their harlotry and their corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, Make known to them the desire of the house, the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, its design, all its statutes, all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design, all its statutes, and do them. This is the law of the house in the entire area on the top of the mountain. All around it shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are God and we are not. You are an infinitely holy God. And apart from you, Almighty God, we are altogether sin. 
And we're thankful that you're a gracious God as well as holy. And you reconcile unholy people to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Cause us, Holy Spirit, to consider these things, your holy presence abiding among your people. May we take these things to heart, glorify your name in all the earth. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What my my desire tonight to do is, if you look at verses 1, essentially this passage cuts in half. Verses 1 through 6 is a section, and then verses 7 through 8 is another section. They're related. Verses 1 through 6 really gets us at the major theme. So when I look at the Bible, both to study it for myself and to preach or teach it, and teaching and preaching are different things, but when I do that, I'm always looking for the major themes. What's the major doctrine, the main teaching? And if you look at 1 through 6, God tells us by the repetition of, of a similar thing, and the similar thing is seen to us in verse uh, 2, um, the glory of the God of Israel. And then verse 2 again, and the earth shone with his God's glory. And then verses 4 again, so a third time, and the glory of the Lord. And this is used all caps, the, the glory of Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. And then again we have in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And, and this is... Um, you know, the first temple was filled with the glory of God. Again, coming in, I think, almost the same place. The glory of God enters the temp- temple from the east gate. Here again, this is the return of the glory of God coming in the exact same way that it came in the first temple. This is talking about there will be a second temple, Zerubbabel's temple being built. But ultimately, I think this is pointing towards the eternal estate. We are the temple of God and God dwells among his people. That's ultimately what being, what's being taught. So clearly this passage is speaking about the glory of God. I've entitled the passage, The Glory of God Returns, because what we're having specifically is these people, I'll mention this perhaps in the body of the sermon, these people are in the Babylonian captivity. So they've seen the destruction of Solomon's temple, and then they're going to be repatriated back to the land in three successive waves. They were taken away as deportees in three successive ways, and they're return returnees in three successive ways. And then under Zerubbabel, they'll build the second temple, which is less glorious than the first. I think even the people that seen the first and the second start crying. This temple is, is altogether something different. It's built on an exceedingly high mountain, which the earthly Jerusalem was, was not an exceedingly high mountain. I think it's half a mile high, 25 so this this is um but but I want to look at I want to unpack for us tonight what does it mean when God says the glory of God the glory of the God of Jehovah the uh, the God of Israel what does God mean when he says the glory of God and this may seem like a super basic sermon if it is mea culpa in advance sometimes as Christians I was not raised I was raised a Christian in a particular church but not a bible believing I didn't read the bible I didn't really read the Bible until I became a born-again Christian. I know that's redundant, but at the age of 26. And so sometimes if you're raised in a Bible-believing church, a home, you use Bible terms all the time. Yeah, glory, yeah, glory, yeah, glory. Everybody knows glory. And and forgive me, but sometimes we use a term so much or we're so familiar with a term that we don't even know what what we mean by that. And so what does God, what is he getting at when he says... My glory will fill my temple. My glory will abide with my people. What is he getting at? So if, if this is um, 
something that's fairly simple to you. Um, I, mea culpa again, but um, I, I want to unpack the idea of the glory of God because that's what he's talking about. The Hebrew word, this is the Old Testament written in Hebrew, obviously, and uh, I know baby Hebrew. I think I took, uh, what, three years Greek, two years Hebrew. So um, this is kabod or kabod, however it's pronounced, but that's what it is. And properly, this particular word means um, essentially heaviness or weightiness. Um, I had a minister, a PCA minister, he was fundamental in teaching me the Reformed faith. He would say, this is like God as a heavy weight. So that's what it means properly. But then when it's used figuratively, we go from the idea of heavy or heaviness or strength or power. Figuratively, it means, which is legitimate, glory, honor. I like the, the word of splendor, even riches or abundance. So there are less Hebrew words than, than, than uh, English words. And so oftentimes in Hebrew, the word will do double, triple, quadruple duty. So you'll have the same word for nose as anger, as red, as hot. And so when we look at this word, we're trying to unpack what is it that God means to express when he uses this word kavod. So some kind of weightiness, heaviness, power, splendor, might, abundance, riches, all those things are true. And so that's the word. And then God will use a possessive saying, it's of me. So it's not just glory in the abstract. It's the glory of God. It's the weightiness of God, the splendor of God, the power of God. God is saying to his people, I'm going to be with my people, really. But this is who I am. There's a book um, when, when people are big and God is small or something like that. And um, it's, it's when we fear man more than we fear God. This is a complete opposite look of that. When God is immense. Because God is immense. It is meant for us to look and put God in the right perspective. But also because most of us live in the fear of man so much. When we look at the glory of God, we're not terrified at the threats of man. Remember, these are, these are an enslaved people. And so they're enslaved by the Gentiles, by Babylonians. And so for them, man is exceedingly large. God is infinitely above. This is the power, the majesty of Almighty God. Most of us, and as Bible-believing Christians, you love Jesus, you're on your way to heaven. We really don't think enough about the godness of God, the grandeur of God, the greatness of God. We really don't. Uh, we're, we're terribly impressed with things, with men, with stuff. And God wants us to be terribly impressed with himself. And so when God is speaking about the glory of God, it's another way of speaking about himself. God is his glory. God is glorious. In a, in a way, it's when God says, my name. It's not the name separated from the person. The name stands for the person. Um, let me see if I can express it this way. Um, when, when God speaks to Moses about his name, I, I just referenced it earlier, I think, Exodus chapter 3. God furthermore said to Moses, this is the burning bush, bush passage, to get at the notion of when he says my name, he means him. And so when God says my glory is going to be there, he means him, his person. We can't separate glory from God, name from God. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever. This is my, my memorial name to all generations. So when God says you are to honor my name, he means himself. And if we could apply that to when God says, I, I am bringing in to my temple my glory, he means himself. He means the splendor. God is the sum of his, all, all of his perfections. And we can't say God is 10% love, 10% mercy, 10% holiness, 10% justice, anything like that. God's 100% of all of his attributes. It's, I, I commit to your reading, when we look at the glory of God, I commit to your reading because it's a mind blower. Our secondary standard, it is a secondary standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 2, paragraph 1, why not just read all three paragraphs of chapter 2? It's on, it's on God's nature. And then chapter, ch- chapter 2, paragraph 3, deals with the Trinity, which is even more of a mind blower. But when you look at chapter 2, paragraph 1, paragraph 2, it's just talking about how God reveals himself in the Bible. Most glorious, most holy, most, most righteous, most merciful, most loving. That's this. God's love is glorious. God's justice is glorious. God's patience is glorious. That, that's what God is saying. In my glory is going to be in your midst. It's just God wants us to be overwhelmed by his presence. To be overwhelmed with him, not in a servile or a cringing or a slavish way, but we're his children. He's revealing himself to his children, but to be overwhelmed with God. Sometimes the theologians refer to the vision that we have with Christ in heaven as the beatific vision. What, what's the response of a human being, a, a born again, reconciled human being, when we're in the presence of Almighty God? When we're in the immediate presence of God, Isaiah chapter six. What's what does Isaiah do when when he sees even the train of God's word? You fall on because of His glory. Even John on the Isle of Patmos, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus loved him. He loved Jesus. He sees the risen Lord Jesus, and what does he do? The the glory of Christ so overwhelms him. I I only understand this much. I really do. I only understand this much. And I only see this much because of this stuff that's on me. But when this stuff goes away and we're in the immediate presence, it will be this. It will be this. We only believe in Jesus this much. Even the most strongest believer, we, we see him, we believe him, and we love him, we adore him this much because of all this stuff. When, when God says, now you're in my, my immediate presence, what does Paul say? Is it 1 Corinthians chapter 4 or 2? I forget which one. Is it 2 4? It hasn't even entered into our minds what it will be like. This is a picture. You are going to see the glory of the Lord. That's what God's promise is. God says, I'm going to be with you. So it's the splendor of splendor. It's the splendor of God. And I want to back up a little bit to talk about the glory of man as a way for us to see that the glory of God infinitely is above the glory of man. Um, The Bible does actually use a few times glory in reference to men. Men and women, when I use men, I don't mean excluding women. Um, But the Bible does reference man as having glory. I'm going to argue it's derivative. It's gifted to him by by God, 
and I'm going to argue it's temporal and that God, it's obscured by sin. So when we look at the glory of man, we say, wow, isn't that glorious? God's glory is infinitely above that and this pales in relationship to that. Let, let me see if I can tell you what I mean. I use one example from an Old Testament um, believer and then one example from an Old Testament unbeliever that the Bible says have, they have glory. The first is in reference to Aaron, the first high priest, and then his sons were also priests. And the Bible says that the garments of Aaron, the high priest, and the tunics of his son, helpers, the Bible says this, and these garments were for his glory, Aaron, and their glory and beauty. So there's something about the, the outward vestments of the priests that were glorious. It referenced their position, their power, particularly because as priests, they were, they were the representatives of the people back to God. They offered sacrifices to God. They're intermediaries, as, as it were. They're agents of God's grace. So it had glory. And, and the second person is an Old Testament unbeliever. I'll butcher his name, and you probably will butcher his name. It's Ashus Verus in, in Esther. And is it, Esther is a unique book. I think is the, Esther the only place that doesn't mention the word God. It's a very unique book. But Ashus Verus is said in the Bible, he's a Persian king. And you know the, the, the story in Purim and where they, the Jews kill all the, the Persians and so on. But Ashus Verus has glory. And the Bible says this, he reigned from he reigned from India to Ethiopia. I think there was 127 provinces that he reigned over. And he gave a mighty feast one day. And he displayed his riches, the Bible says, in his, his royal glory. And I want to say he gave that feast, which represented his royal glory, for 180 days. Now, what was the glory that King Ashesverus had? He's an oriental king. He has his harem. He has his military might, his, his financial might. So, so it is glorious. Now, I want, to, I want you to ask this. We're going to look at the glory of man as a way to magnify God's glory. What happens to the most glorious human being with some aspect of their glory, whether it's physical beauty or financial strength or military might? What happens to the glory of every human being? What happens to it? It fades away. It fades away. My mom died when she was 79. And she had, and I had the privilege of doing her funeral. And I had never seen this photo of my mother. We called them culottes when we were kids. I'm 58. So culottes are, they're pants that go to here. And your knees. Um, I don't know what you would call them now. But my mother was up in her picture she wanted for her, her um, um, funeral photo. She was 17 years old, and she had a, a pair of culottes on. And she was just sitting there in Plymouth, Massachusetts with a little sweater. And I'm like, look at you. <laughs> I've never seen a picture of my mother like that. I'm like, oh, she's a pretty young woman. But I have seared into my memory what it, she looked like on her last day and she didn't look like that the glory of man is a fading thing we get terribly impressed about everything 
We, we really do. I said it at the outset. Boy, look at that. It's a, such a strong, stout fellow. Such a beautiful young woman. Such a rich person. Or whatever. Take a man whose intellect is a genius. I think it was John Newton towards the very end. John Newton's a genius. He was a genius, genius. He taught himself Hebrew and Greek while he was on a ship by himself with a Hebrew lexicon. I challenge anybody in this room to do that. Take a Hebrew Bible and a Hebrew lexicon and teach yourself Greek while you're the captain of the ship in Hebrew. He was a genius. And towards the very end, you know what he said? My memory is almost gone. I only know that I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. Guys who are geniuses, towards the very end, their glory is gone. So the diminishing glory of man, as I say, it's derivative, it's gifted, it's which is another way, fancy way to say it's given us to by God. And it's so obscure. And it's always an amalgamation of glory and non-glory, meaning sin. But when we come to God's glory, he's infinite, he's e- eternal. And the theologians say he's immense. In his aseities, he's underived, he's uncreated. He's... When we talk about God's glory, we can reference two things. You may have heard these concepts, transcendence and imminence. Have you ever heard those two things? Transcendence is a fancy way. In reference to God, it means that God is other. God's high. God's above. This is, I, I think, part of the sin when we make God little. We say, well, God is just kind of a pinch hitter. He's like a little genie I put in my back pocket and I rub what I want stuff. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not this God. When God comes into his holy temple, the people can't even function because the Shekinah glory is so overwhelming. So transcendence is, I am not my creation. I'm above it. I'm holy. I'm separate. I'm separate. It's the grandeur. It's the splendor. It is, is it to some degree overwhelming and frightening? Yes. But the, we want to have the view of God that God reveals himself to be. We, we don't want to have a little God. I, I've mentioned this before. When I was in, I lived in Tallahassee for 10 years, there was a church that said, we declare, I don't know what year it was, 2000. We, we declare the year of 2000, the year of God's sovereignty. That is the most silliest thing. You declare the year, this is God's going to be sovereign this year? He must be in heaven saying, wow, boy, thanks. I don't know what I was last week. I, I don't know. I guess you're making me sovereign. It's utterly ridiculous. It's having a pint-sized view of God. You're not looking at the Bible. This is not the God of the Bible. This is the God of your own imagination. You're God. You're bigger than God. So God comes along and says, I'm this kind of a God. That's the transcendence. Heaven is God's throne. And what's his footstool? We're down here by his feet. That's the imminence part. So transcendence is other. But what we're looking at is this transcendent God has condescended to be imminent. And that means near. If God was all transcendence, no one would know him. Do you think you could make yourself known to an amoeba, such the amoeba that would love you? No. You're infinitely above the amoeba. Not, you're not inf- we're not infinitely. We're, not, we're, we're above, but not, we're, we're not infinitely above. The amoeba would never know you and love you, and you would never know and love the amoeba. That that pales in comparison. So if God was all transcendence, we wouldn't have the, 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 the cloud entering into the temple. The cloud entering into the temple is the imminence of God. This is where the 
the, 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 the deist divorces God from creation and in and the um, so he divorces God from creation and the other guy the, the, the pantheist confuses creation with God God is both above and other but he's imminent he's near the deist is wrong and so this is God saying I will be intimate with my creation and I, as I mentioned I use the word condescending that's an aspect of grace so when God says, I'm going to be and dwell among my people, you're going to see, this is a visible manifestation of his presence. God wants to be known by man. This is an utter stunner. This is what Calvin, I know Calvin gets a bad rap. Calvin was overwhelmed that God <coughs> desires to be known and loved and worshipped. And if he didn't want to be known, it would all be transcendence and we wouldn't have any of this. Where, in whom or where do we see the presence of God abiding with his people? What's the word Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God wants to be known. God wants to be known here, particularly in the context, is by his people. And the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. If you don't have faith, you think, wow, this is just a strange passage. Well, strange, yeah, God, he seems to believe that. Strange, yeah, let's go out for Chinese food later. Let's do something important. Without faith, we can't see the glory of God. You ever watch a woman give birth? I watched my wife give birth to both of my children. I was an unbeliever at the time, but I thought, this is amazing. Living human beings came out of my wife. This is utterly amazing. This is utterly amazing. But can we ever get at rightly the Psalm 139? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by God. God did this. No, without faith, you just think, that's an amazing thing. A human being came out of a human being. But we can't give glory to God. When we look at the stars, the wind, the moon, the waves, without faith, what do we can think? What do we think? Wow, that's amazing. But with faith, what do we think? My Father in heaven did that. God did that. And so when we're looking at the glory and the glory of God, this is the glory of God's presence as recognized by his people. Only people by faith can benefit by what's going on, by God saying, I'm going to come and dwell with my people. The glory is some visible, audible representation, manifestation of God's presence. I'll give you an example. What would be something like this in the New Testament? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Is it Acts chapter 2? The glory of God came down on the church audibly, audibly in the sound of, of rushing wind and those kind of things, and then visibly with tongues of fire. That's this. God's presence is among his people. God's presence, the Shekinah glory, filled the temple. The Shekinah glory is filling this temple. God is dwelling with his people, even with the giving of, of, God, of the law of God. God's glory came down what? His glorious law, his glorious gospel, his holy righteousness, his glorious mercy. So that's what's going on here, just in general, by way of laying the groundwork. Um, God is saying that he will be among his people and he is a, a glorious um, God. So the believer is in, in view. Sometimes we've talked about glory, I think, 
as a noun or an adjective, but sometimes the word glory is used as a verb, that we are to give God glory, or we are to glory in God. And in that case, it's um, most often it's not the uh, kavod word, root word. It's, I, I, I think the word is yadad, I'll butcher that. But it means to cast up, cast up. Presbyterians most often don't, we, I, I, I don't think we most often do one of these. But with the idea of praise is you don't have, this is, it's not the posture so much. But when we glorify God, there is something that we're, we're magnifying him, we're elevating him, we're extolling him because he is high, he is mighty, all of those things. But I'm not against lifting your hands. When I'm alone, I lift my hands all the time. But I, I digress. Um, I want to read a little bit from Psalm 86 because it gets at the business of what we're talking about. All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. You are great and you do wondrous deeds. Beloved, can I just say pastorally, can I, can I ask you a question? As a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, in your prayer life, and I hope you have a prayer life, and I hope it's daily and throughout the, the day, when we consider the glory of God, does it provoke us or or? or motivate us to petition or does it provoke us to thanks and to praise many of us as Christians have a hard time with praising God which is just an adoration of his of, of his being we're so used and I'm not picking on I, I'm, I'm not against this we're so needy as Christians that most of our prayers consists of um, of petitions Lord God help me Lord, my, my little grandson a while ago had a 103 degree temperature. And my wife was, I think she was up in Atlanta, and she said, call, quick, um, pray. Uh, Connor has a 103 degree temperature. And I got out of bed. I was home alone. She was with the kids. And I, all I prayed is, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy. Beloved, so petitions are legitimate. But when we come and see the presence of God the holiness of God the love of God, the grace of God it motivates us to praise and praise is it, it's a bit harder in, in, in the one the petition we're looking at self and the other we're looking at God and um, looking at God motivates us to praise now this here this as I mentioned this is the glory of God coming into the temple of God. God has already revealed himself this way to Ezekiel. Obviously, we worship God through a mediator subsequent to fall, and that perhaps would be another sermon or study. But God is revealing his glory to his herald, and his herald is going to turn around and tell the people of God about the glory. And God's already done this for Ezekiel in a number of places, and Ezekiel actually says, this is like when I was by the river Chabar, and in those instances, I think he sees clearly a vision of the, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, which is glorious. But God has shown himself to be glorious to his herald, that his herald would faithfully declare to God's people all that God has revealed to him. Um, the reason that this is so significant is I mentioned at the outset these particular people. What, is he, what did he tell us in chapter forty? Are they 25 years in? So Babylonian captivity was for what length of time? 
70 years. And God told them, I think in Isaiah, I know in Jeremiah, that after 70 years, he's going to bring them back. So if you're in there for 25 years, I was a sociology major, so even I can do the math here, you've got 50 years left. So you're 25 years in, and you, 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 you're a slave. And you're a slave to Babylonians. We're not talking nice folk. And so you're a slave in Babylonian captivity. And these people would have lived long enough to see Nebuchadnezzar, who was another legitimate heathen, who actually God calls my servant, which is interesting. He calls Cyrus another heathen. He actually calls him Mashiach, my anointed servant, which is interesting. But Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant of, I would argue, both justice on the unbelieving and fatherly chastisement on the sinning believing. But they lived long enough to watch Judea get sacked, Jerusalem get sacked, and the temple destroyed. The word Ichabod means what? What does Ichabod mean? Do you know what Ichabod means? It means the glory of God departs. Was was it Eli? Was it the priest Eli? He had two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were scoundrels. They, they used to grab the women when the women came in, and they abused the women, and then they'd steal all the food and the money and all those things. They were scoundrels. And God told Eli, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to your sons. And the people of God were living like heathens. And the Philistines came, and they fought against the Israelites. You remember what they captured? The Ark of God, which is depicting the presence of God among his people. And I think it was the wife of Phineas. It might be the boy Hophni, but I think it was Phineas. She, she was just about to give birth. And she hears that her, her husband has been killed, her brother-in-law has been killed, and the ark of God was captured. And she falls down, and she gives birth. And as she's giving birth, she passes away. She's dying. And she names the boy Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. God's taking away that special reconciled, loving, merciful, recognizable presence away from his people. I'm leaving. Can you imagine that? He takes his presence from the ark and these people watched the temple be destroyed by heathens and so the temple, the presence of God leaves the temple, the presence of God leaves the ark and why did God take that mysterious, reconciled, merciful, loving presence from the people. Why did he do it? He tells us later why. And people, this is what people think. And the people were saying this. We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the sacrifices. We have the priesthood. Everything's okay. Could we just say like this? We're Christians. We have a church. with a, a church building. We're, we have the Bible. We have the Lord's Supper. We have baptism. Everything's okay. God's here. Everything's okay. Can you go to a church right now? A church building that has a building way prettier than this. Bigger windows, bigger ceilings. Better, the minister has better clothes. But it's Ichabod. What is a church building without the presence of God? What is it? It's a bingo hall. It's a bingo hall. You know what they're doing back in Boston, the land of my youth, with, 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 and they're doing the same thing in, in, in England. What do they do at all the church, the gorgeous church buildings in England? What are they? They're restaurants. 
drive down what is it, that way. Drive down, uh, not Ninth, one of them. What's a gorgeous church building? A Japanese steakhouse. Why? It's just a building. The Spirit of God is gone. But God is saying, here, I'm going to bring it back. But he tells them why his spirit left. If a church says, we're okay, we have a building, we're okay, we have the means of grace, we, I have a name. This is not just an Old Testament concept. It said, you sin, God is saying to him, the reason I left is because you lived in your sin. Remember I prayed it? God's a holy God. The law is holy. The gospel is holy. And we're called to be holy. You say holiness to, to, to most Christians, what are they going to say? Legalist, legalist, you're all a cow. This is legalism. Legalism is if you think you're going to earn your salvation. The only thing we, we deserve is hell. All salvation is a gift of grace, but God didn't save us from our sins. Christ didn't save us from our sins to live in our sins. That's wrong. I challenge any person that says I'm a Christian that Jesus has saved me from my sins and I get to live in habitual sin and God's okay with it. I'm going to call you Ichabod to your face. Not in a mean way. Jesus says to a church in the New Testament, just to show you that I'm not playing fast and loose with this, perpetual, habitual, lived in sin. I'm not talking stumble in sin. We all stumble in sin every day. But I'm talking what he, God says, you are a spiritual harlot. And you're not letting go. And your abominations, which are habitual, you're not letting go. Living in a sin, saying, this is just what I do. And God's just going to have to like it. You're going to chase away the Spirit of God. You, you can't lose your spirit. You can't lose your salvation. You're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. And he's going to grieve you. That's this. What does Jesus say in the New Testament to one church that says, we're just going to do what we're going to do. We have a name that we live, but we're half dead. He says what? You either repent or I'm going to do what? I'm going to take your lampstand. You can turn your church building into a Japanese steakhouse. I'm not there. Now you think, boy, that is some bad news. That is really bad news. That God is so offended by the sins of his professing people that he will take his holy presence away. But this passage is not bad news. This passage actually is good news. God says, your sin cannot sin away my grace. His promise to bring his presence in with his people, he will do. What does that mean? God's presence will motivate us to purge the sin from our midst. His grace, his love, his mercy will chase our love of sin away. God has a plan for that. And it's called here the Babylonian captivity. We live in the Babylonian captivity. But God tells his people, I will dwell among you. And I'm a holy God. And you're my holy people. God says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18. Come out from among them, be ye holy, be ye separate. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my children. <sighs> Beloved, this reaches its final climax in the eternal estate, in heaven. When we die, and we go to be with God in heaven as believers, or Christ comes back and he takes us all collectively to be with him, will any individual Christians or the church collectively be engaged in any sin at all? 
No. It will all be holiness because we'll be in the presence of this God. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.